You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Twitter's tepid results. Another blow to the company that's already fighting a high-profile legal battle with Elon Musk. We will talk about what it tells us about the state of social media. Plus, more and more tech companies hitting the brakes on hiring. What does it signal about the future of the economy? And what does Silicon Valley look like when the dust has settled? We'll explore. And finding a soulmate comes with a cost. And inflation isn't helping. Singles are getting creative as the dating economy suffers from sticker shock. We'll dig into trends in dating apps. All that in a moment, but first Snap, then Twitter, dragging tech markets down. Disappointing results only fueling fears of a recession. I want to zoom out and talk about what all these tech results so far have told us about the state of the economy. For that, I want to bring in Wedbush Managing Director Dan Ives and Techonomy CEO David Kirkpatrick. Look, let's let, let's start with Twitter uh, because we saw uh, you know miss miss on the top line uh, users. In line, Dan, is Twitter just treading water right now? I think Twitter's basically trading right now as odds or almost an arbitrage on what's going to happen in Delaware. In terms of in with the must deal, in terms of how that plays out from either a settlement or he ultimately needs to you know, buy Twitter based on the Delaware court. But I will tell you, those metrics, firmer than fear, and I think it should, especially when you compare it, as Ed talked about, the snap, just absolute disaster, blaming everything except for the wind. I mean, Twitter holding it a bit better than expected, but it is trading right now on what's happening in terms of October in the Delaware court case. And remember, it was Snap, uh, you know, coming out and revising its forecast earlier this year that sort of kickstarted this market meltdown. David, what's your take on what we're seeing from Snap? Even Evan Spiegel himself saying he's not happy with these results. Well, I think in the digital advertising business, some companies are a lot better positioned than others. And Snap is not at the center of the industry. I think it is at risk, and it showed that it's at risk of a unusually strong reaction when advertisers start to pull back. I don't think that's the case for some of the bigger companies. Um, it, it is interesting to me when you look at what's happening with Twitter. Um, 
it, it's a company that probably has gained a lot from the sheer publicity around the Musk efforts, and they are gaining users. Uh, so I agree with Dan, it's not nearly as bad as we might have expected. So here's the question, Dan, how much does what's happening with Snap and what we just saw with Twitter signal about the state of the online ad business? What does this actually mean for Meta or Alphabet, for example? Dan? Yeah, and there's obviously a big drum roll into next week. I think one of the most pivotal week of earnings for tech in, in probably five, six years. But look, Snap, you know, even a good economy, Snap's had a lot of difficulty getting their arms around their business. Continuum is viewed as a paper airplane and a hurricane. I still believe when it comes to YouTube in terms of Google and what we're going to see even Pinterest and others, I think digital ads slowing, but I think maybe holding up a bit better than feared. But that's why next week's going to be key, especially when it comes to Meta. Streets baking in a lot of bad news. But I just continue to not view SAP as the best barometer for what's happening in the industry. That said, there's a lot of talk now about whether the social media business model is sputtering, is on the verge of failing. I mean, David, we're seeing Facebook, you know, pivot entirely to a whole new future with Meta, in, in, in part because I'm, I'm sure because of some of the weaknesses that they see internally. I mean, do you think this is some sort of what we've seen so far, whether it's just the last couple of weeks or the last, you know, couple of quarters, a sort of indictment on the business model of social media? No, I don't. In fact, I think the pivot to meta and the metaverse uh, at what used to be called Facebook really has a lot of other causes and, and a lot of them have to do with reputational management. Um, I don't think that social media industry is at risk of failing in any fundamental way. I think the evolution is happening faster than some would have expected, uh, particularly with TikTok's extraordinary billion global user rise. Um, the, the incumbents aren't really prepared. Uh, they aren't as fleet-footed now, especially the, as they're so big, particularly in the case of Facebook uh, and Google to a lesser extent. I think Google is the best positioned company of all of these, though, myself. Hmm. So you think Google has the biggest upside in the tech sector. Why? Well, it's, it, it's not that it has. It's just that it is, it's embeddedness in the global economy, not the tech economy, just in the global economy is so thorough, so immovable. This is not true for the businesses of, of Meta Facebook, except for possibly WhatsApp, which is a business that really does have a almost impregnable global position. Um, but the Google services, many of them are just inconceivable for people to live without. And I think that is a huge uh, defense mechanism for them. They've put themselves in a fantastic position over decades of building incredibly well-designed and useful businesses. Dan, what tech company do you think has the biggest upside right now? Well, first, I agree 100% with David on, on the Google side going into next week. but. To me, it's that company in Cupertino. It's Apple because I think that's one. It's an underestimated demand cycle still, even with a swirly macro in terms of iPhone 14. You got a quarter of the base, about 225 million, that have not upgraded three and a half years. That services business, Rock of Gibraltar, and I think that's going to come through next week. And I think some of the parts, Apple's still a stock that has the two in front of it. That continues to be our top tech name. But Dan, even Apple is cutting back on hiring, cutting back on costs, cutting back on spending for various divisions. What does that tell you? 
Look, I think that they're being prudent. You're seeing that across the valley from Microsoft to Amazon to others. But but this is more prudence rather than what I sort of view as just a massive deceleration that's happened in the business. And I think there's also other areas that they're looking to spend on. And it comes down to what's baked into these stocks. I think that's a theme that we saw play out with Netflix, with Tesla. And I think next week, I view this as sort of better than fear in terms of how it's going to play on Apple. I continue to put an asterisk around that front and center, along with Microsoft being our core cloud name. David, would you say you're expecting better than feared results next week? I think it's hard to predict what's going to happen next week. But one thing that I would say, it, it was on a Bloomberg article this week that I read that a recession is almost inevitable if it hasn't started already. So any of these companies that were not preparing themselves by battening down the hatches would be uh, pretty poorly managed. Um, I do agree, Apple has just done enough, another job, sort of like Google, in its own unique way of building businesses that just can't be stopped. So I doubt if they would be slowed much by even the beginnings of a recession. All right, uh, David, you're going to be sticking with us. We're actually going to be digging into this big hiring slowdown a bit later in the show. David Kirkpatrick, thank you. And Dan Ives, always good to have you here. Happy Friday. All right, coming up, one tech company after another slowing or stopping hiring. Is it a sign of ominous economic skies ahead? We'll talk about that and more next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Big tech is hitting the brakes on hiring from Apple and Microsoft to Netflix and Amazon. Silicon Valley is cutting back on growth after years of bulking up the entire industry, bracing for a potential recession. Alex Barinka covers social media for Bloomberg News. Tech Economy's David Kirkpatrick still with us. So look, you've got Microsoft eliminating new job openings, Google slowing hiring for the rest of the year, Amazon saying they overstaffed during the pandemic. Now they have to cut back. Alex, what are the, the biggest headlines you've seen in this raft of news from tech companies that they're pulling back. 
Yeah, um, I'm seeing a lot of pointing fingers at things like rising inflation, hitting costs, um, and uh, and customers of folks like Amazon who sell products, uh, pulling back spending. I'm also seeing a lot of um, this idea of macroeconomic uncertainty hitting companies that depend on advertising on uh, their businesses. I think a couple really good examples, Emily, are in the second quarter results we saw this week from the likes of Twitter and from Snap. Um, both of them pointed to uh, this kind of macroeconomic uncertainty hitting their advertisers and causing campaign budgets to go down. So that means that the places that they depend on for revenue are getting smaller. That advertising pie is shrinking. Snap for, um, for uh, that company um, gave some hints into what a lot of these companies might be thinking about. They said, look, the pool of money that we're making on the top line is getting smaller. So we're actually looking across our business and seeing where can we optimize um, our bottom line? Where can we optimize profitability? What other opportunities that we're already working on can we look to squeeze a bit more money out of? And of course, like the rest of the companies you mentioned at the top, they are being really cautious when it comes to adding more headcount and more costs and which investments they are picking because it seems like right now we're in a bit of a choppy environment, Emily. Indeed. It seems like we're getting memo after memo from various CEOs saying we're slowing down here, we're pulling back there, I want to warn you about this. David, you know, some of these uh, you know, are companies that haven't reported yet. They're going to be reporting over the next couple of weeks. But what do you think they're seeing that the rest of us aren't yet? Well, I think each one is a different story. Uh, I suspect that the big companies aren't seeing terrible ad spending results yet. That could easily happen in the near future. Uh, certainly in the case of Meta, Facebook, uh, there is a real possibility, as the great Alex Kantrowitz pointed out in his newsletter this week, that Facebook, Meta really could have their first year-over-year -year decline uh, in revenues ever. Uh, so uh, that would be really a big change for a company that has had a historic run of just growth after growth after growth for really well over a decade. Um, but but the, these, the, the thing about Meta, too, that I think people may forget is that the, the big advertisers are not their primary source of revenue. They're, it's very important, but their small business and medium business are really where their bread is buttered. And, you know, at this point in the economic shift, I suspect that smaller companies are still willing to spend to try to stimulate business. So my guess is that Meta's results will not be shockingly bad, although they, they even themselves predicted growth is slowing. You know, we saw that user growth uh, even started to drop in certain key geographies. So they have problems all over the place. They have an identity crisis. You know, they don't even know who they are. They, you know, the metaverse, they're predicting too soon. I'm going on, but um, there's some thoughts. Well, and there's an interesting question of how do these social media companies survive a recession when most of them weren't around in 2008 and Facebook was only four years old. I mean, I know that's when you were writing your book, but, you know, we don't really have a lot of past experience to, to, to indicate how social media will survive a recession. Well, that company in particular has zero experience. The irony is um, I was writing my book in late 2008, throughout the, all of 2009, came out in 2010. So this is when the economy was in terrible shape. And ironically, I barely noticed, because at Facebook, there was no evidence of it whatsoever. Um, and so there really is, an, unequivocally, you could say, 
Mark Zuckerberg has never been through a real downturn. I mean, people who are young may not realize, in 2008, 2009, we had a serious recession. That is something very, very new for that company in particular. Well, and obviously Mark Zuckerberg has made a lot of big acquisitions over the years, but wasn't able to buy Snap, wasn't able to buy uh, Twitter, if that was ever really on the table. But Alex, do you, do you think, could M&A be a possibility? You know, could some of these companies buy or sell their way out of this? Uh, potentially, if they feel like they have the cash to do so. Um, for Mark Zuckerberg looking at Facebook, um, I think that they have this now existential threat of the macroeconomic environment. He's also kind of dealing with this threat of users wanting an experience that didn't originate on Facebook. Uh, the, the TikTok size elephant in the room is something that all of the meta platforms from Facebook to Instagram are also having to contend with. Right now, it looks like that company in particular is betting on building uh, building and changing both the flagship face, uh, Facebook app and the Instagram app to better satiate users' obsession with short-form videos without trying to alienate the user base um, that they have. You saw changes with both Facebook and Instagram's core experience this week, basically making them look more like TikTok. So um, buying their way out of it, you know, I think that would be a big question. And if I were the board of these companies, I would want to be uh, maybe taking a conservative view because if if you're not putting that money toward things like headcount and bringing on people to more quickly develop things in-house, I, I would think that those dollars um, would need to be spent pretty presciently uh, if you're looking for um, somebody to keep up with the times amongst these social media companies. David, I believe you were reporting at the time of the dot-com bust. I mean, based on your own uh, professional experience, what's your sense of how Silicon Valley, this version of Silicon Valley, survives a recession? Well, I don't think survival is in question. I mean, these companies are deeply embedded, as I said in the earlier segment in the world economy. but. But interestingly, the, the business at Meta that is most embedded is the one they get essentially no revenue from, WhatsApp. Um, and, and I find that ironic. Um, but um, I, I, I think that they, they really will be okay for the short term. It's a, you know, I think if it's likely a recession will be short if we have one. And I think they will manage their way out of it. Interesting. Uh, Barinka, you know, what are you what are you hearing from your sources inside these companies? Is there, you know, for some of my sources at Facebook, it still seems like good times. Yeah, or at least it seems like motivated times, right? Mm. Um, you have uh, the company prioritizing things like um, changes to their feeds, uh, like I mentioned, to keep up with with uh, the TikToks of the world. You also have, um, you know, that whole uh, not legacy business but existing business, the ad business on Instagram and Facebook, basically funding their new ventures into the metaverse. The bright, shiny new object that Mark Zuckerberg has indicated is the future of where they're going. So, good times in parts of the business. I will flag. Emily, with these hiring freezes and maybe the, the bad pockets that we're seeing at Meta, um, there's concern around things uh, that really matter to a lot of the people on the ground, like diverse workforces and what happens when you're not hiring as many people. And how do they continue to contend with um, the bubbling up of misinformation going into the midterm? So um, I think that you know, good times, depending on what team you're sitting on, might be the way to look at that. Um, are you within the groups that are seen as kind of the future or, you know, 
know, the really necessary changes that are instrumental to making sure that these businesses maintain their cultural relevancy with the users that are so important to them and advertisers? Or are you in some of these pockets that maybe are starting to fall below the line um, and are not seen as places that the that their internal dollars should go um, to kind of catapult the company into into and through a choppier economic environment? Quick, David, Snap just shed half its value. Evan Spiegel didn't want to sell before, but do you think he might be more willing now, or is, could Snap be a target? I think it could be, but really, with Lena Khan at the FTC, I, I, the current mood in the U.S. government and the EU, I don't think it's a good time for any of these companies to make a big acquisition. Um, I, I also think, just quickly, I wanted to mention, you know, I do think Facebook Meta will get through this, but Zuckerberg's comments recently about pairing back his staff sounded very heartless. I think they were very ill-considered. They showed an inexperienced manager, and it could deter future hiring. It really makes it sound like a bad place to work if, you know, we've got a lot of dead wood. Let's just get rid of it. Mm. Indeed. Interesting point. Okay, David Kirkpatrick, CEO of Techonomy, as always, and our very own Alex Barinka. Appreciate you joining. other stories we continue to watch progressive groups want senate majority leader chuck schumer to recuse himself from legislation targeting big tech they say he has a conflict of interest because his daughters work at amazon and meta various different groups have been advocating for antitrust measures cracking down on tech giants no comment yet from schumer himself Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo says the U.S. can't keep relying on Taiwan for semiconductors. In a virtual speech at the Aspen Security Forum, Raimondo said Congress needs to pass legislation to support the domestic production of high-end computer chips. She also called the $50 billion package, quote, a Sputnik moment for America. Apple has changed its tune in Washington. New lobby disclosure figures reviewed by Bloomberg show that Apple has been spending more money than ever before. Apple even going as far as deploying Tim Cook himself to work the halls of Congress. This as the tech giant is fighting the package of antitrust bills that might get a vote next week. Bloomberg's Mark Gurman joins us now for more. So Mark, it's understandable that Tim Cook might have more sway if he visits Washington personally than if he sends in a team of lobbyists. But what do we know about how Apple is changing tact? Yeah, it seems like this is episodic. Right now, it's a very challenging time, not only for Apple, but a lot of the big tech companies, where they really need to up their lobbying efforts to fight against some bills and some circumstances that could really upend some of their business models, right? So it makes sense to me that Tim Cook would be there personally, talking to lawmakers, meeting with people on Capitol Hill, and voicing Apple's concerns with some of these bills surrounding antitrust measures. Tim Cook also has wanted to float new privacy laws, and him, along with some executives from other companies are trying to push new privacy laws there as well. Cook has been making the argument that Apple's privacy-centric approach to its products not only is good for the consumers, but means they really shouldn't have to take on these new antitrust bills because they do it in order to make the devices more private. Now, that doesn't make a ton of sense to me and a lot of people, but that is Apple's argument there, and that is what he has been pushing. So here's a question is it working is tim cook himself going to washington making these um pushes are are, are lawmakers hearing it 
There have been some changes to some of the bills, some of the language there that will make the antitrust bills less difficult on Apple in terms of needing to change things, right? Particularly with that privacy argument, it has been working in some respects. Uh, it obviously, the efforts won't fully work unless these antitrust bills don't pass and Apple doesn't have to make widespread changes to its products. But of course, it's not only the US where Apple is doing its lobbying efforts. One big fundamental change that the company is making next year is changing the port on the iPhone from Lightning, which has existed for the last 10, 11 years, to USB-C. And that's in part due to some changes that lawmakers abroad have pushed. So Apple really is taking it from all angles here, and that is why they're upping these lobbying spends. So this package of tech bills that would potentially curb some of the power of these companies, we're expected to see potentially some movement on them next week. Any likelihood any of this will pass? You know, I think it's uh, you know too early to tell. There has been some momentum on Capitol Hill for these bills. If I were to you know tell you one way or another, I would just be speculating. I personally think that major changes are coming to Apple's platforms uh, in either way, right? There's obviously the Digital Markets Act. There's the acts that you have been talking about. There are the the different laws that have been pushed from lawmakers abroad and here at home in the U.S., right? So I do think we're going to see fundamental changes either way. I don't think it's about if, but I think it's about when. Whether that's this year, next year, or the year after, there will be a fundamental shift. And how does what Apple's doing compare to what other big tech companies are doing on the Hill, whether it is Meta or Alphabet or Amazon? I mean, they all have huge lobbying arms. Right. I mean, I think that you can take a look at the, the lobbying spend that some of these other companies are doing. Apple spent a, a few hundred million dollars so far. Sorry, let me step back. A few million dollars, mm -hmm. not a few hundred million dollars. I know that's a big difference. This year uh, on lobbying, that is an increase for Apple over some prior years, right? But that is about half of what you're seeing maybe from Amazon or Microsoft. But still, this is noteworthy because it's an increase for Apple. Just because Apple is doing less or even as much as what those other companies have been doing now for the first time, it doesn't mean it's not a big change for them. So certainly we are seeing a sea change here. We are seeing Apple taking DC and the need for lobbying very seriously. Uh, what has been pretty interesting to me is how different the Apple relationship appears to be with the Biden administration than it has been with the Trump administration. I feel like when Trump was around you, in office, you saw you know Tim Cook uh, meeting with Donald Trump very frequently, talking about him. You saw Trump talking about Cook often. But in terms of the Apple relationship with Biden, that has been very different. The last time we saw Biden say anything related to Apple. It had to do with unionization in Apple retail stores. Tim Cook participated in a Biden administration meeting uh, regarding cybersecurity. But you have not seen the type of lobbying that Tim Cook did with Donald Trump uh, that you're seeing now with Tim Cook doing with Joe Biden. It is much different. It seems like the relationship is uh, definitely not as close. Interesting. All right. Much to continue to follow. Bloomberg's Mark Gurman, thank you for your reporting there. Meantime, back to inflation. On top of surging gas and grocery prices, single people are finding another aspect of life is getting more expensive. Dating. And as costs balloon, some daters are scaling back and being more selective about the dates they're going on. This according to data from dating apps themselves. Bloomer's Paulina Cachero wrote about this and joins us now. So what are we learning about how the dating market has changed? Pauline. 
Yeah. So, you know, I think that we're seeing that, as you mentioned, with the cost of dating on the rise, you know, people really have both love and money uh, at the top of mind when they're looking for a partner. And that's changing the dating game entirely. Tensions are rising over how to split the bill. Um, and as I mentioned, people are scaling back and being more selective about the dates that they're going on because they're finding that their dating costs have doubled. One woman I talked to said she spent on average about $200 a month on dating. Now she's spending about 400. So, you know, people are just being a lot more intentional about who they're dating and what they're looking for. And they're finding, you know, that they want to be with a person who is financially savvy and offers some kind of financial stability as well. How is this impacting the dating apps themselves? I mean, you know, I hear a lot from single friends, you know, these apps are already kind of expensive and you don't know for sure if you're going to get that payoff. Are the costs of a subscription to, you know, see those extra profiles or get that extra information, is that going up and are people paying up or is this, you know, something that's discretionary, something that they're cutting off uh, given that they're under pressure across the board when it comes to prices? Well, I can't say too much about the subscription prices on dating apps specifically, but when we talked to the dating apps, they said, although that some people are being more selective about their dates, they're not necessarily stopping their love lives entirely. Some a small select few people are. They are just uh, looking for certain partners instead of, you know, going on a more spontaneous date. They're making sure that they're being upfront with what they want, um, you know, in the early courting phase of dating, which is an extension of the dating trend called hardballing. And if someone doesn't really fit the bill, um, they're not willing to take a chance on that person. Um, you know, dating apps are also finding that people are being a little bit more creative about the dates that they're going on. You know, instead of maybe going on, taking someone out to a really nice dinner, maybe they're going to a picnic instead, or they're maybe going to a museum or uh, going to a farmer's market and making a home cooked meal. <laughs> I love farmer's mar markets, nothing wrong with that. Are people changing what they're looking for? Um, do, do, do these apps see that that is evolving at all? Yeah, we're definitely seeing that evolve. Um, you know, as you mentioned, Americans are feeling the pinch from inflation. So finding a person who is financially savvy is an increasingly attractive quality. OkCupid okay, daters who said they keep a budget have received 16% more matches and 7% more likes over the past three months than people who said they didn't. And nearly half of daters on the app also said that they would love to find a partner who earns more money than them. So I think you're just seeing that you know people are looking for a person that they know that they can weather a recession with, who they know that they can rely on, um, you know, both emotionally and, you know, financially as well. All right. Interesting. Paulina Cachero, thanks for bringing us that story. You can find more at Bloomberg.com. Okay, coming up, the Ethereum merge now has a date. We're going to talk about just how massive the impact could be on the crypto industry next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice 
or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. It's time now for our crypto report, and there are new developments in that story of the former Coinbase product manager who was arrested for alleged insider trading. And Coinbase is now pushing back against these allegations. Our crypto contributor, Shanali Basik, is here with the latest. So is Coinbase defending this former product manager? Yeah, there's a lot of nuance here, Emily, and really the question at stake here is what is a security and are digital assets securities? So you take a look at this inside your trading case and you have Coinbase's chief legal officer, Paul Grewal, talking about how illicit behavior is something they take super seriously. Obviously, Coinbase did uh, cooperate with this investigation. But the thing that's really in question here is that definition of securities itself and whether this was securities fraud. So, for example, we have Paul Graywald talking about in a blog post the idea here that seven of the nine assets included in the SEC's charges are listed on Coinbase's platform and none of these assets are securities. You have different regulators here uh, coming in and different uh, definitions here. And he, uh, to go on, Paul Graywald has also said that Coinbase has a rigorous process to analyze and review each digital asset before making it available on the exchange, a process that the SEC itself has reviewed. Now, if you go on to read more of the blog post, he talks about and cites the CFTC commissioner uh, talking about how this is a striking example of regulation by enforcement here. So you do see some differential between not just the agencies, but also in the way that Coinbase is interacting with those agencies as they comply with this investigation uh, of uh, an issue here where certain uh, securities were traded before certain tokens were listed. But again, are tokens just tokens, or are they securities? I'm Emily, and are time will yet to play out. That is the question. Time indeed. Okay, stay with us. I want to talk a little bit more about Ethereum's next chapter, the highly anticipated merge. A date has now been set, and if everything goes to plan, we should expect Ethereum's final merge to happen the second week of September, more specifically, the 19th. I want to bring in our next guest, Matt Hogan, CIO at Bitwise Asset Management. Um, Matt, so curious what your thinking is around the merge and just how um, impactful it would be. It will be on the broader industry. Yeah, this is a massive piece of news for Ethereum and for crypto more broadly. I think this is the biggest development in the crypto space since the launch of the DeFi summer in 2020. It's going to transform Ethereum into an asset that institutional investors uh, feel increasingly attracted to, maybe even compelled to own. And it could be the marker that represents part of the bottoming process we're going through in crypto. We may look back on this merge or the announcement of the date of the merge as a signal market 
the single moment that turned us from sort of the crypto winner uh, into at least a sideways move before we go to the next big up move. Now, we recently interviewed the co-founder of Tezos, Kathleen Brightman, who didn't have nice things to say about Ethereum. Take a quick listen to what she had to say. In reality, it's really no different than uh, something like Hex, uh, which is which is kind of a Ponzi scheme that's crashed in the last few um, weeks, uh, which is just a token that basically pays you for freezing it. The longer you freeze it, the more you receive, so on and so forth. But it's just, it's all inflation. Obviously, we know, Matt, this is a very tribalistic industry, but she kind of likened Ethereum to a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, I don't see that analogy. Ethereum is the new infrastructure on which decentralized finance, NFTs, and stable coins are being built. Tezos is an interesting project that's trying to compete with Ethereum, but it's a tiny fraction of the size. It has a tiny fraction of the developer community. What she was speaking about was part of the merge is going to incentivize long-term investors in Ethereum to lock up their ETH, to stake their ETH, which allows them to earn a yield on their investment, which takes some ETH out of the market and should be accretive to prices. I would put a more positive frame on it. As a long-term investor, you're going to be able to access what amounts to almost a venture capital style investment, one with huge potential payoff, but one where you can earn a yield that could be eight, nine, or 10% or more. I don't think it's a Ponzi scheme. I think it's the new internet of finance and uh, we're just at the beginning of that transition. Well, speaking of that transition and, and tribalism here, what does it mean for Bitcoin? And do you think one wins out of the other, especially when you look at how nascent uh, Ethereum is in terms of valuation compared to Bitcoin? It's, it's a great question. Uh, you know, on one hand, yes, Ethereum will win out marginally over Bitcoin. By that, I mean that to date, institutional investors have only been in Bitcoin primarily. And in the future of crypto, they're going to be in Bitcoin, Ethereum, and I would argue a wide array of assets. That's one of the reasons why Bitwise creates crypto index funds. So it is going to force institutional investors to diversify their holdings. But more than that, this is going to be a rising tide that lifts all boats. Again, what's happening in Ethereum will catalyze new interest in crypto, new opportunities in crypto. And I suspect Bitcoin and Ethereum will rise side by side. I think Ethereum's share of the crypto market could increase substantially compared to Bitcoin. But I suspect that both of them are going to be heading up over the next few years. You know, there's a lot of questions about staked Ethereum and Ethereum, and there's still a bit of an imbalance if you look at kind of the liquidity pools. I'm wondering, you know, this is a grand test of time when it comes to decentralized finance. There's so much debate about whether DeFi will win in the end, given the issues that we see in centralized finance in crypto. But uh, how do you know what the issues will be moving forward as this industry goes? Yeah, well, you, you don't know, of course. That's the risk that you take. There is no uh, risk-free reward in investing, and there's certainly a lot of risks in the crypto market. But if you look at what took place over the last cycle, we saw the rapid emergence of DeFi. We saw the rapid emergence of NFTs. We saw $100 billion plus flow into stablecoins, all built on programmable blockchains like Ethereum. As we get through this crypto window and start thinking about what are the new products that we're going to see in the future? We're going to see growth in DeFi, in NFTs, and stablecoins. We'll also see huge growth in things like Web3 interactions, uh, gaming, digital identity. I think the, the market cycle, the next market cycle we're moving to is going to be orders of magnitude larger than the last cycle. And that was really just a proof of concept phase. This next few years is when crypto goes mainstream. So that's what we expect from Ethereum and the broader crypto industry.
So tease that out for me a bit. How how much bigger do you think the cycle will be? Oh, I think it's I think it's you know mul many multiple times bigger is the answer to that. Again, we saw if you think about crypto's returns, what drives crypto's returns? Crypto booms when it develops products that people want. It boomed in the early 2010s when people developed Bitcoin, which was this interesting non-monetary asset, non-sovereign monetary asset. It boomed in 2016, 2017, when we had Ethereum and ICOs. The most recent boom was when we had NFTs and we had stable coins uh, and, and we had DeFi. But that just penetrated 1% of the market. I think the market opportunity for all of those are 10x. I think there are five or six other killer products that we'll see in the next market cycle. So I really think that the next boom could be five, 10 times bigger than the prior boom. I think it will be the moment that crypto goes mainstream and your friends, your uncles, your cousins are all interacting with the crypto market, be it through gaming, digital identity, music NFTs, ticketing, DeFi, traditional NFTs, or stable coins for payments. I do think it is orders of magnitude larger. It's probably still a year or two off, uh, but you can see it clearly on the horizon and we're getting closer to it every day. Matt Hogan, always good to have you. CIO of Bitwise Asset Management. Appreciate it. And our very own Shanali Basik. Have a great weekend. After a few years of complaints from pro users looking to unlock the full potential of their iPad Pro and its speedy new chips, Apple recently launched Stage Manager, a brand new multitasking system. The feature lets iPad users run multiple app windows at the same time, and it even works far better than before with large external monitors. The feature is exclusive to the latest iPads with M1 chips and also works on computers running macOS Ventura. Users can click through their recent apps on the left side of their display and then quickly pop any of those programs or workspaces into the foreground. But I don't think that this new multitasking system really fully cuts it. It's often confusing and sometimes hides key controls behind extra menus. It seems like Apple came up with a solution that dances around the most obvious one, bringing full Mac OS, like multitasking, to the iPad. The iPad now has big 11-inch and nearly 13-inch displays in the same M1 chip that powers the MacBook Air and the iMac. It can handle and should be able to make good use of core Mac multitasking features like Exposé and Mission Control. Pro users like myself want that full flexibility to run as many windows as possible at one time and quickly click between several tasks simultaneously. The good news is, is that Stage Manager builds in new technologies for the iPad, like multi-window support and rescalable and resizable windows. That means that some of the underlying technology that would be needed to eventually implement full Mac-like multitasking is now built into iPadOS 16. Only time will tell if Apple will eventually fully unlock the iPad. The good news is, is that Stage Manager today is optional. So it appears that even Apple knows that one day it will need a brand new solution for all iPad users. I'm Mark Gurman. This is Power On. Don't forget you can subscribe to Mark's weekly Power On newsletter at Bloomberg.com.
Meantime, there is a new social media app in town and it's being dubbed the Anti-Instagram. The app requires users to take a photo within a two-minute window every day and it has soared in popularity over the last few weeks in spite of complaints that it crashes at a critical moment. It's called Be Real and it took the top spot in the U.S. in Apple's App Store three days this week with 1.7 million installs the week of July 11th. And a Friday kicker, if you love vintage Apple products, this is the holy grail. Steve Jobs' prototype for the first Apple desktop computer is up for auction. It was hand-built by co-founder Steve Wozniak in 1976, and it is one of 200 different models. Right now, it's going for about $230,000. An Apple One prototype was sold in 2020 for $470,000. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. We've got a huge week of tech earnings coming up. Meta, Alphabet, Apple, Amazon, and more. We will be across it all. And don't forget to check out our podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Have a wonderful weekend, everyone. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.